the last of the doctrinal uh, uh, perspectives in Romans. The first 11 chapters, that's doctrine. And then from chapter 12 through 16, now we get practical application. So hang in there just for a few more Wednesday nights. This is a little deep and tricky. And then we'll get to some very practical application. For now, Paul says in verse 13, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as... I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Not long ago, I drove past the home my wife and our three boys used to live in early on when we came to Texas. Many, many years ago was our first home in Pearland. And uh, I rode by, I just wanted to see it and what it looks like and uh, what the neighborhood looks like. And I had mixed emotions. Uh, I remember putting in the driveway a big basketball hoop on a big pole. I dug a hole. I mean, it took me forever. I put about 900 pounds of concrete in it. I mean, that pole was going to stand forever. And it wasn't there. My sons and I, we used to play in the driveway all the time, lots of good memories. And this person, the mere owner, the new owner of the house, had the gall to remove this, which was ours, and to which we had such a personal connection. And then I noticed the roof was still the same color, green tiles, the only house in the entire neighborhood with green tiles because I painted it. I painted the house, and I painted some of the borders around the windows green. And it was a, a, a hurricane and kind of blew the roof off, and I thought, well, now that we have time to replace the roof, I know I'm going to get some roof tiles that match the green border. So here come the guys, the roofers, with these ugly green tiles. I mean, the neighbors were looking. Several put their houses up for sale and <laughs> stuff like that. And I went by, and I thought it was cool, and I still do. And there it was, that green tiled roof. And then I just uh, thought, boy, I'd really like to go in the backyard, but I could probably get arrested for doing something like that. I wonder if the gardens we planted are still there. And I'm just thinking of all this stuff, and I saw a car in the driveway, and it wasn't my car, and it was a driveway we had repaved. I made it like a curved sort of a deal, an artsy kind of a deal. I'm telling you, we were the talk of the town, not in a good way, but still. It was like sort of like that's what happens when Yankees move into the neighborhood. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, it could be worse. I didn't make it in the shape of a star of David. I just put a little curve in the deal. But anyway, and I'm looking at all this, and then I felt a terrible sadness because I thought somebody else is in that house, is occupying the space that has had and still has very special meaning to us. We painted, we remodeled, we redecorated, we raised our sons and all kinds of things. And I, something was happening on the inside. I sort of felt like somebody else is in our home. And I think that's what Paul was saying. 
he was saying, though I'm an apostle to Gentiles, I always have in mind the lostness of my own people, and I hope that God would grant me favor with Gentiles so that they might by faith embrace the Lord Jesus as personal Savior and that they might so buddy up with lost Jews that those Jews may feel like Somebody else is in their own home. Somebody else knows the significance of their holidays. Somebody else reads their scriptures. Somebody else is connected to the root of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And somebody else is living in their home. They're the outsiders now. And Paul's hope and prayer was that all this, the conversion of Gentile people, who come to know the Jewish Messiah might arouse lost Jewish people to jealousy so that they might want back in to their own home. That's what he says. Well, last week after the service, one of our wonderful members, Dawn Larson, shared with me a story. And Dawn, as I give an introduction, could you visit with me up here? Don't worry, folks, I won't call on you at random. We, I got permission from Don to do this, and Don shared with me a marvelous story of a conversation she had with an unsaved Jewish man in the workplace, and as I was studying Don, your encounter really reminded me of what Paul was saying about taking on these things familiar to Jews as believers so as to arouse them to jealousy. So could you share with us what happened? and I think it worked. <laughs> I had phoned uh, one of my customers, and it was, it was about four weeks ago, right before Rosh Hashanah. But he doesn't know that I knew that. And he said, well, I need to get back with you in a, in a week or so. I'm going to be um, closed for the week for religious holidays. And I couldn't help it. It just came out. And I said, oh, for Rosh Hashanah? And he kind of paused. He's like, well, what do you know about that? are you Jewish too? And I said, no. Is your husband? No. And then I thought, oh, what did I just get myself into? And I said, no, as a matter of fact, and I was trying to be very careful. I didn't want to offend him. I said, I'm a Christian, and I believe that. I said, I know y'all don't like to hear this, but Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And he said, well, it's not that we don't, I don't mind hearing it, but um, he goes, I'm just, I'm real curious why you, and I started telling him, we do Passover, we do Rosh Hashanah, we do Sukkot, and he just couldn't believe. He goes, why do you want to do that? And I said, because Jesus was a Jew, and he's my Savior, and I, why shouldn't we learn about what he did? And he said, wow, he goes, I really want to talk to you some more about this, but, you know, I can't today, but let's talk about it. And so I was calling him again a few times during the month, and I got a hold of him Monday. So the first thing I said was, oh, how was your new year? I said, did you eat some apples and honey? And he said, yes, I did. Did you? And I said, yeah, me and my son. And and I didn't bring up Jesus at this point. I wanted to kind of do what our guest speaker said, you know, like, get into his world a little. I just don't want to browbeat him. And so I asked him his favorite foods for Hanukkah and this and that, and he was really enjoying telling me all his favorite recipes. 
And I said, all right, well, okay. I'll, he goes, you call me again. Call me next Monday, and, and I'll let you know if I've got this business thing resolved. And I said, all right, I will. So I'm just going to kind of keep asking him things. But he was, he really wasn't dismayed at all. He actually, I said, well, don't you think it's funny that Jewish people and uh, the Christians are really being persecuted right now? Don't you think we kind of need each other? He's like, yeah, maybe so. But I know I get his wheels turning, and so I'm going to keep working on him that way. <laughs> God bless you. Thanks, Don. Don is a wonderful person and a great person, but just an ordinary person. I mean this with all due respect. And she did just what Dr. Robinson said. I love the way you put it. Uh, she entered this man's world. She spoke a little bit of his language. Uh, she connected with a holiday he is aware of. Rosh Hashanah means the new year. And that he was then celebrating. She showed an understanding of things about his own feasts and festivals that he doesn't even know. She knows more about his stuff than he does. And that's the very kind of thing that could do what uh, Paul wished would happen, that, that his countrymen, his fellow countrymen, as it says in the text, would be moved to jealousy as he sees the wonderful, wonderful blessings and benefits of Dawn knowing the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for being faithful to do that. And let's join with Dawn, if you don't mind, in praying for this uh, person that the Lord would really stir up his heart. You know why it's important not to neglect Jews when we, when we reach out with the gospel? By the way, Jews are not more important than anyone else, but they shouldn't be left out from the gospel. Here's why, verse 15. Paul says, you see, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, Paul said earlier, through Jewish rejection of the gospel, God made it available to Gentiles. So here he says, if their rejection of the gospel is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I'm not saying it. I'm just reading it. God is saying through his apostle, there's special blessing that comes when Jews, to whom the gospel was offered first, in fact come to know Jesus as Messiah. So last week we spoke, as I mentioned, about replacement theology, which essentially says God is finished with the Jews. They have no longer any future. He's replaced them with the church. The church is now spiritual Israel. God no longer has a plan for ethnic Israel. I want to show you something in verse 15 that really, really contravenes all of replacement theology. You see the phrase, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Doesn't that phrase anticipate the salvation of Jewish people in the future? It doesn't look to me that God is finished with them when he asks the question, what will their acceptance be? It hasn't happened yet. What will it be in the future but life from the dead? It doesn't look like, though my people by and large have rejected the Lord, it doesn't look like the Lord has rejected them. Verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root, root of a tree, is holy, the branches are too these are two figures of speech which essentially say the same thing. The first piece of dough and the root are metaphors for 
the patriarchs of Israel with whom God made a covenant. It's a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Since God separated them out, made them sanctified, holy, a special group inheriting his covenant promises, since they have this character of holiness, then even if the root is holy, so are the branches, all the Jewish branches. This doesn't look like God is finished with the Jews at all. And so it says in verse 17, but if some of the branches, those are Jews who, because of their hard-heartedness and rejection of the gospel have in fact been hardened by God, if some of the branches were broken off and you, the branches are the Jews, and the you are the Gentiles, and you being, I like this part, a wild olive. I'm just reading it. I'm not calling you names. It just says here, that's how, who you guys are. <laughs> I just, it just says right here. And you being a wild olive. So if you're having like an identity crisis, who am I? And you're a Gentile? Listen, your crisis is resolved tonight. You be a wild olive. That's who you are. Go home, look in the mirror and say, I am a wild olive. Now, this will be helpful to you. So anyway, if you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, does it say among or instead of. If it said instead of them, then we all ought to hold to replacement theology, because then it looks like God's replaced Israel. Notice it doesn't say that. It says among them. It says Gentiles, by faith, can be grafted in to the rich root of the Jewish olive tree. If this happened and you became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, Paul is saying the root of the olive tree is Jewish. Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, are grafted into a Jewish tree. Therefore, he says, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Gentiles, don't be arrogant towards Jews, but if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. That's what it says. This is not Stuart doing his Jewish thing. I'm simply reading Romans chapter 11, the root of the tree to which you as Gentile believers have been grafted into is thoroughly Jewish. Therefore, to be arrogant and pompous towards Jewish people flies in the face of this reality. You simply, by faith, have been grafted in to the root, that is, the root of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I want to tell you, sadly, throughout church history, many church leaders and others have responded to Jewish people differently than Almighty God has responded to Jewish people. Church leaders have rightly observed the hard-heartedness of Jewish people, for sure. They have rightly observed that Jews have by and large rejected Jesus, and as a result, they've come to the fast conclusion that Jews are uh, an accursed people, despised and rejected by God and ought to be 
treated, mistreated as such by the church. This is not Jewish paranoia. Let me read to you. Uh, I've done this before. I'll add a few tonight. Some of the words of uh, key church leaders throughout history. Justin Martyr, A.D. 160. He said, the scriptures are not yours. He said to, about Jews, the scriptures are not yours, but ours. See, that kind of statement does not arouse my people to jealousy. If you say the scriptures, which was given to us, are not ours, they're yours, holy Toledo. That just doesn't warm up our hearts at all. We don't really want to become one of you when you say stuff like that. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, A.D. 177, said, Jews are disinherited from the grace of God. Tertullian, uh, in his treatise, he wrote a treatise called Against the Jews. He announced that God had rejected the Jews in favor of the Christians. Eusebius, 4th century, wrote that the promises of the Hebrew Scriptures were for Christians and not the Jews, but the curses were for the Jews. Isn't that interesting? I love this guy. Pick and choose. We get the good stuff. You Jews get the bad stuff. Hilary of Poitiers in the 4th uh, century said, Jews are a perverse people accursed by God forever. I read these things to you because well-known church fathers seem to have embraced a point of view that is diametrically opposed to what I'm reading about God's point of view in Romans 11 and many other places as well. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be on the side of certain church leaders. I want to have the same perspective about everything that Almighty God has. And so these guys are off. Gregory of Nyssa, 4th century A.D., Bishop of Cappadocia, said, the Jews are a brood of vipers, haters of goodness. That's just not going to win us to the fold. St. Jerome, the Jews are serpents wearing the image of Judas. That doesn't sound like a compliment to me. John Chrysostom, 4th century. You can still read his sermons today. He was referred to as the golden-tongued preacher, gift of oratory for sure. Bishop of Antioch wrote this. He said, the synagogue is not only a brothel and a theater, it is also a den of robbers and a lodging for wild beasts. No Jew adores God. Jews are inveterate murderers possessed by the devil. Their debauchery and drunkenness gives them the manners of the pig. Of all things, pig. You know, in the whole scheme of animals, he had to choose pig. St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, he instigated the burning of a synagogue by an anti-Semitic mob. St. Ambrose said, go get him, tiger, burn him down. Godfroy Bouillon, the leader of the First Crusade in A.D. 1096, he swore to avenge the blood of Christ in Israel and to leave no single member of the Jewish race alive. And so when the crusaders arrived in Israel, they rounded up the Jews in Jerusalem. They herded them into the synagogue. They burned the building to the ground while they marched triumphantly around it, and they sang the hymn, Christ, we adore thee. If you're wondering why my people don't want to be 
become a Christian, this is some of the reason. My people are a lot of things, but one thing you can't accuse us of is having a short memory. We remember the crusaders who wore on their shields crosses. You're telling me it's a, sy a symbol of the sacrificial love of Almighty God, but you've got to be patient with me. I don't know that. To us, it's a symbol of fear and forced conversion. In the name of that cross, you burned us alive. Don't you see? We don't want a part of that. Pope Gregory in 1236 ordered church leaders to confiscate Jewish books on the first Saturday in Lent. Pope Innocent IV in 1252 authorized the use of torture in motivating Jews to convert. The Synod of Vienna in 1267 ordered Jews to wear horned hats. The Shepherd Crusade of 1320 consisted of 40,000 French shepherds who went to the Holy Land. On the way, they destroyed 140 Jewish communities. The Council of Basel in Switzerland, 1431, forbade Jews to go to universities, prohibited them from acting as agents in the conclusion of contracts between Christians and required, required that they attend church services. Capistrano, a Franciscan monk in 1453, persuaded the king of Poland to terminate all Jewish civil rights. And Martin Luther, a great man of God, I mean this, a great man of God, went off in the latter part of his life. It could happen to any of us. So don't let me throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, this guy translated the Bible into German for people to understand. Wrote hymns like, a mighty fortress is our God. I do not want to take away from his devotion to Almighty God, but he went a little nutso in the latter part of his life. Why? He took the gospel to Jews. They didn't immediately fall down and confess Jesus as Savior, and so he determined there's no hope for them. Let's just give up on the Jews. After all, God must have. And so he said things like this. This is a direct quote from Martin Luther. Eject them forever from this country. He's speaking of Germany. For as we have heard, God's anger with them is so intense that gentle mercy will only tend to make them worse and worse, while sharp mercy will reform them but little. Therefore, in any case, away with them. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Martin Luther said that. You say, well, come on, he's just spouting off, you know what I mean? This is centuries ago. What's the big deal? <clears throat> Folks, if we are theologically incorrect, it's going to lead to misbehavior. Good theology doesn't guarantee good behavior, but it surely increases the probability. And because of thousands of years of poor handling of Scripture by church people, it has given permission for movements like the Holocaust. Do you think I'm exaggerating it? Hitler, Adolf Hitler, acted in accordance, very specific and direct accordance with the non-biblical teaching of some of the theologians I just read to you from, including Martin Luther, with reference to Israel. In fact, 
He, Hitler, saw the genocide of the Jewish people as a sacred mandate. He wrote in Mein Kampf. Have you heard of Mein Kampf? This is his uh, famous book. Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, a direct quote, Today I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator by defending myself against the Jew. I am fighting for the work of the Lord. Good night. He started the movement hot on the heels of the false, poor, inaccurate handling of Scripture and distorted theology of Martin Luther with reference to the Jews. I named our study in Romans a kind of a long title, Get This Right and You Won't Be Wrong. I mean it. Get the doctrinal pearls of wisdom in Romans right and you won't be wrong about the Jews and everything else. Folks, the heretical theology, replacement theology, supersessionism is absolutely inconsistent with Scripture. For instance, it flies in the face. Everything I read to you from these theologians flies in the face of the very Word of God with regard to Israel. Listen, Isaiah 41, verses 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen... Descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely, I will help you. Surely, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It doesn't look like God is extending a clenched fist to Israel. It looks like he is all the day long extending his open palm like of a concerned grieving father over the waywardness of a child. God has not given up on Israel, and neither must we. I didn't say make Jews the priority. I just said don't leave us out. That's all I'm saying. And I'm a little concerned because since World War II, when Jewish evangelism really picked up steam, kind of a sympathy vote after the Holocaust, since then it has declined. Now there's much, much fascination with reaching every other people group on earth. But what about the Jews to whom the gospel is most relevant? It's about a Jewish Messiah symbolized by a Jewish temple depicted through Jewish feasts of Israel and all the rest. If we skip over the Jews and rush to take the gospel to every other people group on earth, we're really, really missing the point. If the gospel is not most relevant to Jews, how could it be relevant to anyone else? Now you say, Stuart, you got to give up this Jewish thing. Well, I will when God does. Listen to me, folks. I'm just going verse by verse. I didn't write this text. I'm just reading it. You say, well, get out of Romans already. Well, okay. We'll go to Leviticus next. I'll show you. No, no. I'm just trying to tell you, any book of the Bible has this intercourse between God and the Jews, and I'll tell you why. It's not about the Jews. It's about the character of God. He's unseen. How are we going to know Him? He's so helpful to us. He said, watch how I treat the Jews. Watch how they treated me. How did they treat me? Oh, God, they squandered your spiritual privileges. They, in essence, said, thank you, God, but no thank you. 
They took on false gods instead. They left you behind. They called for your crucifixion. Crucify him. Crucify him. And by looking to the Jews, we find out about human nature. We're all filled with religious pride. We want to work out our own salvation. I don't want a Savior to save me. I want in my own merit, good deeds, and religiosity to save myself. God said, you learned that through the Jews. And now learn about me. I could have. I would have been justified in wiping them out entirely. Six million of them perished in the Holocaust. But... Six million survived, and there are 13 million of them today. You can talk to a Jew if you want to. If you want to talk to me later, that'll be cool. But you're going to be hard-pressed to have a conversation with too many Babylonians. I mean, where are they? How is it that nations far greater and mightier than the Jews have passed out of existence, no longer are, but the Jews are not only in existence, regathered into the land after 2,500 years? Regathered in May of 1948? Does this have to do with the greatness of Jews? Well, if you ask Jews, they'll say, yeah, but they're wrong. It has to do with the grace of God. And so he's saying to Christians and everybody who will listen, he's saying, trust me, if I promise you salvation through your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of my son, I shall keep my word, in spite of you. And just to give you evidence of it, look at the Jews. I still have a plan for them. I've not wiped them out nor rejected them. And look at, at how they have treated me. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. I saved Paul. I kept 7,000 who didn't bow their knee to Baal in Elijah's day. I saved Stuart. I saved Harry. I saved a bunch of Jews in every generation. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to come next. If I did that for them, how will I ever leave you or forsake you? The basis of your assurance of salvation is that I've not given up on the Jews. I still mercifully extend salvation to them. How much more will I bring you, believers, Christians, will I bring you forth into your place of promise, heaven? And so those who are uh, calling for replacement theology are cutting their own throats because if God has had enough with the Jews and given up on them, I ask you the question, at what point will he say, I've had enough with you? and give up on you. The history of my people is not good, but the history of the church is worse. I'm telling you, read church history, and you shall see. So this is not about the Jews. It's about the character of God. Listen, God says this in Numbers 23, 19, is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The answer is a resounding, yes, Lord, you will. You said it. You will do it. You're not like us. You do not lie. And if my faith wavers, I look to the existence and preservation of Jews today. You've kept your word to them. How much more will you keep your word to your sons and daughters of 
every people group and ethnicity and gender and skin color, anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved to the uttermost. Prove it. Look to how I responded to Jews. The minute you say he's through with them, you're setting yourself up for the time when God may say, and I'm through with you also. That'll never happen. He hasn't given up on Jews. He won't give up on yous. That's one of my favorite things to say. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we bow. Who is like you? You are the most high God. You are the way, the truth, the life. You're separate. You're special. You're holy. You are above it all. You are the Alpha and Omega. You're surprised by nothing. You see the end from the beginning. You're not tempted by sin. You do not sin. You're so powerful. You have spoken things into existence, not through labor, just the raw power of your word. But, oh, God, you've tempered your omnipotence with a heart of mercy and grace. You've illustrated it through Jewish people. You've manifested it through us, the church of Jesus Christ. We're here because of your grace and mercy, not merit, faith in the merits of you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for who you are, God of all grace. Thank you for your heart for everyone. For It's your desire that all be saved, that none perish. Thank you for not giving up on anybody. Therefore, if we are your followers, neither must we. Never, never, never. We must continue to extend the gospel lovingly, strategically, relevantly to a lost and dying world. This is what you would have. For you are all powerful and you are compassionate and you are good. Thank you, oh God, that we can rest on the assurance of your word manifested in the way you keep your promises to Israel. This we pray in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.